Hello and welcome to Brainwaves, bringing you the best in tabletop gaming news. I'm Jamie Adams. I'm Oliver Kinner. And I'm Ian McAllister, and this is Brainwaves episode 112, and these are the headlines for the week of the 12th of December, 2022. AI turns its mind to Stratego. Games industry conference cancelled. Wizards and Hasbro push back against criticism. All this and more on this episode of Brainwaves. Yeah, this week we can start with another digital uh, AI game. Uh, and I'm, I'm leading the charge here because I seem to be the IT person. So this time we're talking about an AI that masters Stratego. DeepNash, the next technological development from AI company DeepMind, has been designed to play and win Stratego. DeepMind was also the company behind AlphaGo that rocked the Go playing world by beating 9Dan Go player Lee Sedol. Stratego, for those of you who don't know, is a classic two-player capture-the-flag board game from 1946. It's a bit like chess, but all the pieces are hidden from the other player. So traditional machine learning approaches that work well for perfect information games obviously aren't easily transferred to Stratego. There's also the potential for bluffing, because the opponent doesn't know which pieces is which, making the game more akin to Texas Hold'em Poker. Deep Nash employs the new AI techniques to deal with the challenges that Stratego poses. It has learned the game from scratch by playing against itself. Now Deep Nash has reached the top three ranking among human players on the world's biggest online Stratego platform, Gravon. DeepMind's press release says that, and I quote, in matches against the best Stratego bots, including several winners of the Computer Stratego World Championship, Deep Nash's win rate topped 97%, and was frequently 100%. Against the top expert human players on the Graben Games platform, DeepNash achieved a win rate of 84%. To help beat his opponents, DeepNash employs a number of techniques. It varies the setup of its pieces. So in Stratego, you can actually set up the pieces in different ways. So opponents can't spot patterns over several games. During the game, the AI randomly chooses between two equivalent actions, so other players can't predict what option it might have chosen. DeepNash is also quite happy to sacrifice valuable pieces to keep information about the remaining pieces secret. So in the last episode, we heard about the AI that was uh, playing the social deduction game uh, Diplomacy, or was dealing with social deduction in the game of Diplomacy. And now we can see that AIs are playing um, Stratego and using bluffing and, and other mechanisms to keep its cards close to a chest. So I'm wondering what might be the next game that... Uh, the AI can master and use some sort of human activities that um, you know are, are not the sort of standard things like you find in chess or go. So risk, quite a lot of risk, yeah, good idea. I mean, maybe Oliver's an AI because I can see Jamie tonight while we're recording, but I can't see Oliver because he's having <laughs> video problems, as he says. Yeah. So maybe Oliver's actually just an AI. I maybe am. That's why. I, maybe that's why he's so into AI stories. <laughs> I'm actually a computer. <laughs> are we, so are we thinking, is it going to go for more classical games because there's more of a, a background that's more experienced with it? Or do you think it would go into what we, you know, would term now modern board games? Well, I reckon it's probably gone for all the classes because more people know them. You know, Diplomacy yeah. Stratego are well-known games outside the hobby. So that's probably why they've chosen those. But eventually, yeah, I can see them playing other games as well that you just sort of human types of interactions that we would not normally use from AI and computers. I mean, someone's components. got someone's got to be training an AI on like Magic the Gathering Arena or Hearthstone or one of those online card games, right? Someone must be doing that. 
I would. I wouldn't that, be surprised. That, yeah. Yeah. That, the that'd, grand... be like the, that'd be the obvious place to go because at least those those digital platforms exist already, so it'd be quite easy to yeah. get an AI trained on the game. And the grand plan is an AI that can play and win at Twilight Imperium, whichever <laughs> edition they choose. Is that when we get just AIs playing against each other because it just takes too long to play? Probably, yeah. We'll just, yeah, we'll, we'll, just, we'll, we'll, do, we'll just all watch and like, sort of yeah. like enjoy it by osmosis. Yeah. Now, back in episode 104, we informed you of the formation of a new convention on the UK scene. The Games Industry Conference was meant for industry professionals, distributors, publishers and reviewers, etc. to meet and chat out of the glare of the public eye. Now, I'm using the past tense, which may give you an indication of why this is a news story. The conference has been cancelled for next year after it seems like there wasn't enough interest from those the event was marketed at. From the conference's website, I'll read a statement. The Games Industry Conference team regret to announce that we are postponing our 2023 event. We know this will come as a disappointment to all of our exhibitors and delegates and sincerely apologise for the inconvenience. We're grateful that so many members of the industry have been keen to register for delegate passes. However, despite some great early sales of exhibition space, the unfortunate reality is the uptake from exhibitors has not been as strong as we anticipated. While we could go ahead with the event anyway, doing so would mean compromising on the vision we promised our partners and those who had already signed up to attend. That is something we will not do. By postponing, we'll be able to offer a longer lead time for exhibitors to factor the event into their budget during this period of economic uncertainty. Pushing the date back also allows us to generate even more sign-ups for retailers so that there's less risk with coming to a brand new event. We're also speaking with the venue to identify our options for changing the date. While we await clarity on this situation, we will continue talking with our current exhibitors about the options for refunds or rollovers on their bookings. Of course, we still welcome inquiries about exhibitor booths and registration for delegate passes for the 2024 event. I do believe that when we covered this in episode 104, we mentioned that it was going on at a very similar time to the, let's say, well-known Nuremberg Toy and Games Fair. Is it possible that's poaching a couple of uh, customers, a couple of interests? Maybe a different time of year might, might be better? I think our last paragraph is saying the quiet part out loud. We're also speaking with the venue to identify our options for changing the date. I think that's the major problem there, really, isn't it? Too close to Nuremberg Toy Fair, yeah. which a lot of those companies are going to go to. And yeah, it's it's be nice to see a sort of industry event in the UK. It's a good idea, I think, in principle. But yeah, it has to be away from other bits of the event calendar for the year. I was going to say, I think the conference idea that they, they put together is sound and definitely they should push ahead, but trying to compete with a large international hobby game related, at least, I mean, Toy and Games Fair is mm-hmm. always going to be uh, difficult. So yeah, change the date and keep keep going because I'm, I'm behind it. I think this is a great idea and, and we should, you know, see those conferences happening definitely in the UK as well. For sure. In our last cast, we reported on how Hasbro looked like it was overly saturating the Magic the Gathering market, with too many what they call tentpole releases, alongside various expansions being released in between those sets. Hasbro executives have recently pushed back against those accusations in a fireside chat that featured Hasbro CEO Chris Cox and Wizards of the Coast President Cynthia Williams. The chat was hosted by Arpin Kakaran, an analyst from UBS, which is an investment bank. Arpin asked Williams what she thought about accusations the company is printing too many cards. To which she replied, Our average post-launch sales quantities for our temple premier sets remained unchanged in 2022 compared to 2021. In aggregate, there is no evidence that magic is overprinted, and the sentiment of magic needs to cut print runs to support prices 
That's a misunderstanding of our business and our customers. If our prices for a potential product rise significantly soon after our launch, that simply means that we're not adequately meeting customer demand and we are making millions of players unhappy at their lack of ability to acquire the card they want to play. Later in the interview, Williams pushes back against the accusation that falling prices on the second-hand market are evidence that Hasbro is releasing too many sets of cards. She says, We do understand that some players focus on the collectible trading aspects of our product, and we are always thrilled to see players enjoying and valuing our products for years after the initial release. But we don't participate in secondary market activity for Magic products, nor do we derive any revenue from trading or selling. What we do hear from some of our Wizards Play Network affiliated local game stores that trade and sell cards after an initial sale is that like any market for any other collectible products, some products and individual cards do become more collectible than others, and values can change over time due to a multitude of external factors, many entirely unrelated to the number of cards printed. We have no indication that there have been any broad negative changes to interest in trading or post-purchase selling of Magic products. Williams goes on to say that players should expect a similar number of Temple releases in 2023, about six sets last year, but they will be more spread out over the year. She blames supply issues on the recent slate of releases being so close together. Over the course of the chat, the topic turned to that of Dungeons and & Dragons, and here there were some interesting tidbits to pay attention to. Williams expressed the idea that Dungeons & Dragons was severely under-monetized, and that some of the changes that have led to the success of Magic in recent years will be applied to the Dungeons & Dragons brand. Exactly what this means at the moment remains unclear, but she did say, Dungeon Masters only make up about 20% of the audience, but they are the largest share of our paying players today. For the rest of the players at the table, we believe digital will allow us to offer a lot more options to create a rewarding experience. It's worth noting that Williams has previously worked at Microsoft as a general manager and vice president of its gaming ecosystem commercial team, i.e. making money through selling digital games. So chaps, what the changes do you think this is going to bring to D&D? Obviously, we've had a lot of talk about one D&D over the last little while. They've been pushing what's going to be coming in terms of their digital efforts, a sort of online portal that you'll be able to play D&D through. Sounds like they're planning to monetize that in some way. What do you think? Right. So they said it's under-monetized. How are you able to monetize? How are you going to over-monetize D&D without basically just doing, you have to play it online, you have to use our you know, our Hasbro only or Wizards of the Coast only system and you have to download pretty much everything which will cost extra money because if you do it, like at the table, one person needs to buy the books, say three books, your standard three books for Dungeons & Dragons, which cost about 30, 40 pounds each. So you're talking about 120 pounds max. Then you need people to buy dice, yeah. maybe a five or a 10 or each. So you're looking at 130, 140, 50 pounds. But then you can keep playing for... As long as you like. Now, see, now, I, I'm in agreement with you. I mean, that's how I played role-playing games for my entire yes, gaming career. That's, that's, our, that's, that. our, that's but, our privilege that we're able to do that. Yeah, no, no, but, but uh, I've got some friends who run D&D down south, and they've been playing with new players, and those new players are much more into using digital tools at the table, like the, the stuff that exists right now, like D&D Beyond and that kind of thing. They are much more integrated into that digital ecosystem. And while there's not a lot of money to be made there right now, Wizards could change that. So I think, I, I think that is one way they're going to go, is like that integration of D&D Beyond into the sort of at-the-table experience. Will, yes, but if, if you recall recently, money. Uh, going back very quickly to the comments on Magic the Gathering, uh, there was the 30th anniversary this year, and there was the 30th anniversary set, which was 
a series of booster packs full of non-legal reprints from the game first first years of, of production that was $999. Now, that yeah. wasn't guaranteed to get you, you know, re- non-legal reprints of, of, you know, the Black Lotus or something like that. It was just potential. And she did say the scaling back the stock was not a good short-term financial decision, but definitely the right call on the long-term health of the brand. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, they want it to be a billion-dollar brand, Magic the Gathering. They're going to be looking at Dungeons & Dragons in a similar way. And yeah, they're going to be looking to monetize those players. So watch out, I guess. Watch the space. We'll bring you more if we hear it. We'll see what happens. But yeah, Sorry, Oliver. I, 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 sorry, I kind of ran okay. over anything you wanted to say. No, I'm, I'm, I don't really know much about D&D and, and all Magic the Gathering for that matter. But I mean, the only only two options I see for D&D is, you know, you print more books or bring out more, you know, settings for the D&D world or something like that. So, you know, you monetize it that way um, and, and push it, you know, ram it down people's throats. Or, as you say, you go down the digital route and make it a lot more integrated. And, yeah. you know, I thought, online, I as we know, it's a matter of subscriptions, you know, you pay monthly fee yeah. and then you use it as much as you like. And you know, that's a nice model because you have a sort of consistent income stream as a business. You know what you're getting each month. Um, so, yeah, who knows? Anyway, let's go to a couple of updates before we move on to the rest of the news. Dicebreaker, the industry news and critics site, announced their award nominees for the inaugural Tabletop Awards 2022 recently. They held their award ceremony at PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia two weekends ago, announcing the winners. Best board game was won by Flamecraft. Best RPG, Coyote and Crow. Best ongoing card game, Flesh and Blood Everfest. Best designer of the year, Banana Chan. Best publisher of the year, Free League Publishing. The Rising Star designer was won by Lottie and Jack Hazel, designer of Dog Park Board Game. The Rising Star publisher was Coyote and Crow LLC. And the People's Choice Award was won by Beam Saber. Now it's also worth noting that the owners of Pax Unplugged also own Dicebreaker. Well done to all those who won. Uh, I know, Ian, you recently picked up Flamecraft and you are really enjoying it. I know you yeah, quite like Free good. League Publishing, quite some of the stuff they do. Mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely, and uh, I'm, I've heard a lot about the Coyote Crow RPG. That's a sort of sci-fi yes. inflected RPG with uh, Native American sort of storytelling elements in it and uh, put together by a, a group who include a lot of, sort of Native American writers and artists and that kind of thing. So it sounds like a really interesting entry into the RPG genre, which is really nice. Yes, and Coyote and Crow has come up a couple of times over mm, this yeah. year, which is great to see. Yeah, Beam Saber sounds interesting as well. It's a blades in the dark uh, power, so it's a force in the dark game about um, gigantic mechs and the sad people who pile them. Lots of RPGs doing well. Nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah, Flamecraft, I've heard lots about, and I want to get a copy at some point as well. So I haven't played any of the others. It's real good. It's real cheap as well. It's like 35 quid. Nice, okay. I like like how that is really cheap by gaming standards. We're like, oh, that sounds really good. (laughs) Forgetting it, not forgetting, but it's thirty-five pounds still. If you get to a few hours worth of play gameplay with a few people, I mean, divided by two or three people, you know, it's a tenner, fifteen quid each for yeah. a couple of hours of fun. You know, not much more than like a cinema ticket at that point. But yeah, fair point. No, no, I, I know what you mean, but it's just always worth remembering that when we talk about board game prices, the fact it is a luxury item, this is a luxury yeah. hobby, it is still. Oh, I'm paying thirty-five pounds. That's very yeah. reasonable compared to let's say the 
20 pounds or something like that for Frosthaven, which you could beat someone yeah. to death with the box. I can't remember if Frosthaven was more expensive or not. I'm sorry. Oh, the 170 euros of the product we're about to talk about. <laughs> yeah. What what we're gonna... <laughs> I like it. What we're talking about next is Teburu. Now, there was much excitement in some quarters of the board gaming world on the initial announcement of Teburu some two to three years ago. This was a, in quote, board game console with integrated dice, holders for miniatures, etc. It's basically a digital implementation uh, where you can, or well, as promised at the time was that you can play basically any game with it as long as it has sort of the interfaces there. It will record where things are, it might even respond to actions, might read out cards and things like that. So it was supposed to help you combining the digital world with the analog world in, in one situation. Unfortunately, it all sort of died down and has been bubbling away in the background ever since. And now it seems to be back, question mark. Um, recently announced for Game Fan campaign, um, and I quote, Vampire the Masquerade, Milan Uprising is a cooperative board game experience set in the world of darkness, only available on the Taboo system. The last game to use the Taboo system was called The Bad Karmas and funded to the tune of 3,111,497 euros and is due to deliver in April 2023. The pledge that got you the console was 170 euros. So we're looking at basically, you know, a version of a board game console. Um, and it sort of takes me back to the old days where you had to buy cartridges for, for my Atari games console. This is the same sort of idea. So you buy the hardware... Um, and you then obviously need games to play on it. So like any traditional games console, if you don't have games to play with it, then it's not really doing much. And so far as we've seen, you know, one is supposed to come out in April next year. The other one is going on Game Found soon. You know, two games, maybe three if there's some others. Not, not really enough to play. No, I mean, there's been two or three attempts that I can think of off the top of my head to make a board game console and I've seen them in the flesh a couple of times. They're, the, the previous ones were basically just sort of giant um, iPads, effectively. They were fine, but yeah, again, had exactly the same problem where there's just not enough software. I mean, this is a more interesting piece of tech, for sure. Like, it's, it, it's a sort of... The way it looks is like you basically can put sort of pieces on it with RFID discs in the bottom of miniatures so they can be detected. And also, there's all sorts of cool tech here for sure, but you need games to play in it. Yeah. And it, yeah, no, there are no games to play in it. There's a Swords and Sorcery one maybe coming, perhaps. They've got an agreement with the folks who make Swords and Sorcery to make a game for it. But other than that, that's it. I mean, I guess they could put out like some chess things and that sort of stuff, but... <laughs> I remember talking with folks yeah. at Tabletop Scotland 2019, when I think it had been announced fairly recently then. And yeah. we said the same thing back then, which was, it's only going to be as good and as useful as its launch lineup. I think at the time, it was Zombicide was being trumpeted mm. because there was a big Cool Mini or Not um, partnership. I don't know if that's yeah. still in place. I don't know if that development is still going on. But as we said, not only is the launch lineup important, it's the rapidity of what you can put out. If you have four games you bring out that are really good, great. When's the next one or two or even three coming out? Are they going to keep up with the industry? Are there going to be ones coming out that maybe people haven't either played yet? Are they going to be released alongside newly released games? Is that going to be, mm. you know, maybe a, a crowdfunded stretch goal that you, they get a Teburu, um, yeah. what's the word? Like a Taburu, right. uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, thank integration, thank you, Oliver. 
I was going to say, it's all, it all comes down to the partnerships. If you have you know, lots of publishers who want to produce for Tebaroop, then absolutely you can say, all right, we've got these 10 games coming in the next 12 months or whatever. We're producing our own. And then, yeah, people buy into it. And as you say, it's it's fine if you have a good amount of games to start with, but you want to keep using it. It's not one of those things that you buy once, play a few times and then put away and, and sell on. It's The idea is that this is something you keep using for game after game after game for forever basically and that's not happening no and the, the simon mention is kind of interesting there because on tibru's current site there is no mention of that hookup and i don't see it on simon's site either so i don't know what happened there it's, it's very it's, possible that i know that kumino has had some financial troubles recently uh and maybe they've had to just dissolve their partnership very possible now with those updates done it's on to the rest of the news Bit of a sad one at the top of this bit of section of our cast. Reaper Miniatures have announced the sad passing of their CEO, Ed Pugh. From the Reaper, Reaper website, we are deeply grieved to announce that after a brief illness, Reaper President and CEO Ed Pugh has passed away. In his life, Ed took on many roles son, brother, father, grandfather, partner, friend. Ed's life's work was spreading creativity and joy by producing miniatures and building a strong and enduring community. He always sought to lift those people around him by fostering an environment of learning, kindness, and self-expression. In his passing, Ed leaves a void that nobody will ever be able to adequately fill, but we hope to do honour to his memory and his legacy. In his memory, please donate to the animal shelter of your choice. ICV2, one of the industry websites, has got a nice article on the changes Ed brought to the industry. They draw attention to his foundation of a miniatures company that did not rely on licences, and his work in bringing affordable resin miniatures to market through the Bones campaigns. In addition, he pioneered making it more acceptable for stores to back Kickstars, with many retail stores backing the Bones Kickstars over the years. The thoughts of the entire Brainwaves team are with Ed's friends, family and colleagues at this difficult time. Back in episodes 103 and 104, we covered the controversy surrounding Mythic Games' Darkest Dungeon Kickstarter. At the time, the company was asking for more money from backers to get their games to them, with those unwilling or unable to stump up the cash effectively going to the back of the queue in terms of delivery schedules. Now, the company is once again angering backers with a recent Black Friday promotion. They put up much of the Darkest Dungeon game at a discounted price for apparently immediate delivery. Although this does happen on a regular basis with crowdfunding campaigns, it feels particularly egregious to some in this case. Once companies have got the stock in the country that isn't promised to backers, should they, do you think guys think they should be allowed to sell it? It, it happens quite frequently with Kickstarters. I know it can aggrieve backers, as it has done in this case. Should they be allowed to sell it, or what's the alternative? Well, you print 200 games for people that you know you're going to get to them. They're somehow going to get to them. Then you print a thousand games going, this is for me and I'll sell it on. I think they should be able to, but I think there is still the impetus and you have, you know, you've people have given money to them to go, can I get my game, please? Yeah. Now, are they going to take money that they've earned from this and get it towards getting to people that need it? Yeah, I, you would hope so, at least. When you, I think it, it mostly comes down to communication. This It feels like that got sprung on backers quite by a, as a surprise if Mythic yeah. had been up front a little bit about it and said look we've got stock in the country that isn't backer assigned we're going to do a Black Friday sale on that we just wanted to let you know you're still going to get some angry people but at least it's not like out of nowhere yeah so it always comes back down to communication yeah, you know, things go wrong 
things happen. You explain that to your backers or to your customers in general. It doesn't have to be just Kickstarter backers. It's, you know, it can happen to anything. Kickstarter you know, just, backers are still customers. Yeah. It's so different just, just make sure that they're aware, you know, we had troubles, we're trying to recoup some of our losses or whatever it may be. You just explain the reasons and I'm sure people are fine with it. As long as everyone gets their game in the end, um, yeah. they're paid for. Yeah, so talk, talk to your people. Indeed. All of our more board games are being optioned for films. Apparently so. We've discussed many times on the cast the cultural expansion of the tabletop hobby as it encroaches onto other areas of our societal landscape. So now it seems that one of the big games of the last decade has caught the attention of the Hollywood studios and has been optioned for a film. That's right. It's time for Terraforming Mars to make its way to the big screen. It's not like there have been numerous other Mars films before now, have there? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's nice to see that uh, a big game and, and a popular game, Terraforming Mars, that's now been spun into lots of subsequent, you know, sort of, sort of sequel games of various ways. And I think Terraforming Mars, basically, I think you probably heard in many ways recently as Kickstarters and Terraforming Mars, a card game and this. So it's nice to see that Hollywood obviously has jumped onto this and, and wants well, has optioned for film. And we have to remember that means nothing. It just means that they can decide to make a film out of it and no one else can until they've decided that they maybe don't want to make a film out of it. So this is just now going to sit somewhere in a drawer for a while until we hear hopefully further things um, that maybe this is going to be made into film. So, yeah, what do you guys think? How, how is gonna how we're gonna see Terraforming Mars hit the big screen? What what it would look? <laughs> they said any plans, and they said the proposed film anyway would highlight class struggle, colonialism, and ecological collapse. Okay, <laughs> exactly. Uh huh. It'll presumably have terrible production values as well, just like the board game. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Very good. Like really cheap, really really cheap effects. <laughs> Is it going to be three D for dual layer board anyway? Um, <laughs> yeah, struggle, class struggle, colonialism, and ecological collapse. I mean, I can understand. I can understand the class struggle with you know those who initially go to Mars. You know, are pretty much going to be there almost like in a kind of indentured servitude because they are building the things that the people that will probably come after them. Colonialism. I mean, is is that <laughs> is, is that native Martians? Is that who knows? Pe- uh, people who have left and are never going back. Do they now see themselves as Martians and the people from Earth coming and destroying the way of life that they've only had for a couple of weeks? I don't know. Ecological collapse. I mean, you are literally terraforming the planet. I, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we've also had on the BBC recently traitors or the traitors which appears to be, I've not watched it, a couple of my friends have said I might like it, but it appears to be Werewolf, kind of the resistance, in a Scottish as a castle. TV show. Yeah. Pardon? In a Scottish castle. Oh, all right, cool. Okay. Yeah. Ardross, I think it is. Yep. Ardross. Apparently. Well, I think we'll just have to wait and see um, whether this film comes out, and if it does, is it going to win an award, Jamie? Ah, I see what you did there. Sorry. I forgot what my next thing was. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. Now, Ian's favourite UK tabletop magazine, Senate, has added another feather to its cap. James Hunter, the art director for Senate, won Best Art Director for a Consumer Magazine at the recent British Society of Magazine Editors Awards. Senate is a publication that reviews games, interviews big names in the industry, and always has some fascinating pieces on the state of design in the industry. We thoroughly recommend it. Congratulations to the team. 
Uh, yeah, Ian, congratulations. So yeah. that's real good. Yeah, Dave. I've got a subscription. I love the production quality. I love the yeah. writing because Fantastic. obviously, um, you know, big names in there um, from from you know other blogs and things. And yeah, yeah just seeing that the art director is you know, recognised as well. You always forget that visual thing is important for these things. It's not just graphic design, but you know, just generally the the layout. I mean, just yeah. it's a beautiful production, just as a piece of art in itself, almost let alone the, the content, the writing and all that. So it's nice to see that that's been recognized. As, you know, yeah, they seem to be doing quite well. I got an email from them recently saying they're, because they're three times a year at the moment, but they're going to go quarterly instead. So yeah. they've got uh, more magazines are obviously doing well enough to support that. So that's great to see. Good stuff. If you're looking for a job uh, in the industry, then we've got a couple of wee things for you coming up. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is looking for a new art director to join the team. And I think they're also looking for a new creative director as well for, for the sort of overall vision of Dungeons and Dragons. So you can go and check that out on Wizards' website. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you're an aspiring game designer, you can have a look at Potaspiel Online, which will be running from Friday, January the 13th at noon US Eastern to Sunday the 15th of January at midnight US Eastern. It's all online. Uh, you can sign up on their website and there's lots of instructions on how to go about and doing things on there. It's a great event and uh, there should be lots of designers and lots of people to help you out forward your game design and get it polished up. Hope you check those out. We just like to take a moment to give a big shout out to our patrons, especially our executive producers, James Naylor and Sean Newman. Thank you so much for continuing to support the cast in these difficult times. Uh, you can join up as well on our Patreon uh, for just $1 a month. You get a behind the scenes letter as well as access to other some bits and pieces behind the scenes. Uh, you can support us in a variety of different ways on the website, uh, especially buying dice through Metallic Dice Games our t-shirts through Sir Meeple. You can put our logo on your chest and give us a little bit of money towards the cast and hosting as well. But Jamie, it's that time of year when you want to sit around, you know, light a candle and read a nice board game. Well, you say you want to light a candle. That's because heating bills are so expensive now. Well, yeah, you got to warm up somehow. Oh, you could burn some board games. That's right, I said it. Some people love the new game smell. Not me particularly, but we don't discriminate on this cast. Now you can have it in your house without buying new games. I know, calm down. What? According to Dicebreaker, publisher CMYK, known for the party game Monikers, created the new board game smell candle because the company wanted to. They created it in partnership with the fragrance studio Joya, and apparently it smells of paper, ink, and cardboard with a supposed burn time of 50 to 60 hours. All this for $40 or £33. That's an expensive candle. Exactly. Can I have one now, please? I like it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is keeping up with the sort of like board games are expensive kind of thing there, I guess. Like even, the, even the smell of board games is expensive to buy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fresh out of shrink uh, game. This sounds. I, like I mean, th this is this is a quite a trite question, but what other smells do you think could be marketed from the tabletop industry that people? I'd like to point out people would like to smell. Again, we don't discriminate, but let's put it on the the bent of things that might be pleasant to smell. I reckon wooden components. You know, the smell of wood mm, yeah. components. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. 
Maybe the smell of a new, newly opened booster pack for like Magic the Gathering. That's Again, like that's going to be very morning. similar. That's going to be very similar. I'm going to make a laser cut MDF. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Nice. yeah. Nice. Whenever you pass by the, whenever you pass by the TT combat stalls in uh, UK game sets, really, there's just that smell of the stuff, isn't there? I know everyone's fan smell, of TT combat, but yeah. Oh, that smell is gorgeous. Anyway, enough of my reminiscing. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you listen to, then the best way to help us out is to share the podcast, drop us a review and a rating on iTunes or the platform of your choice. You can also follow us on Oliver. First of all, how c- you can yeah, you can reach me at tabletopgamesblog.com, the website and everything you'll see on there. You can follow us on our Discord, on our Twitter at the, is the Giant Brain, which is mostly Ian who runs that. Our Instagram is the Giant Brain UK. Our Facebook is the giant brain our website is giantbrain.co.uk our email is giantbrainuk at gmail.com if you want to send us any messages keep it clean uh please do or don't we'll just ignore them <laughs> i mean yeah but still anyway look after yourselves everyone um very quickly is this the last one of the year no okay Probably it not. will not be the last one of the year so we won't wish you merry christmas just no. yet no, no, have a terrible Christmas. <laughs> have an awful Hanukkah. See you in two weeks' time anyway. Have a despicable Kwanzaa. <laughs> bah humbug. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. I don't mean all that. Bye-bye. <laughs>